This morning's sermon is going to be a little bit different, and I hope that you'll bear with me, and I appreciate your patience as we deviate from the uh, series on love where you live, and we leave off the, the last Sunday we had planned on loving where we aren't, about what it means to be in global connection. I uh, just felt compelled to address a word that is more specifically uh, tailored to where a lot of us are, and that comes from my own reflection on scripture, and I appreciate you uh, engaging with me as we do a little bit of reflection on the book of Hebrews and what it has meant to me in this moment. And I also uh, appreciate your, your patience as rather than opening with the scripture, I'm going to kind of unfold it in the course of the sermon. So I'm going to get right to it. And first, I'd love if you join me in a moment of prayer. Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. And whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Do you remember what your first guess was about when we might be able to get together again for worship? I only kind of vaguely remember what it was like on March 12th and 13th. Uh, those days are kind of a blur for me, but I remember I was juggling phone calls to Jonathan Eicher, our trustees chair, and to some of our other lay leaders and to other pastors in our area and to our staff and we were all trying to sort out what sort of sign or divine intervention would I need to move to online only worship? The thought seemed unthinkable. And I remember making the call with my heart and my throat. And I remember how we said, surely this will all be resolved by Easter. And then it was surely by Mother's Day, surely by Pentecost. And then we put together this plan early in June. It started all coming together and we were sharing it with others to look at and the numbers in Mobile were looking good and they were falling and the church staff came back into the office and it looked like we'd be welcoming our first people in worship in the first week of July. And then in the same week that we adopted that plan and sent it out, we saw the numbers begin to climb here in Mobile and in all the states and cities around us. And today, this morning, as I'm recording this sermon, we've just gotten word that Mobile had the highest ever number of new cases in a day. And we're still waiting to see the source of that or what's going on behind that. But I got to tell you, uh, this last Monday, it was a low day for me. I know that these last three and a half months are the closest encounter that I ever hope to have with the Stockdale Paradox. If you've never heard about the Stockdale Paradox, you can read about it in Tim Jackson's favorite book, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Collins named a chapter of that book after Admiral Jim Stockdale, who spent eight years in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. And Collins interviewed Stockdale and he marveled at how Stockdale never gave up in all his time. And he asked Stockdale about the others who didn't do so well. Collins asked, who didn't make it out of the camp? And Stockdale answered, oh, that's easy. It was the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. And then Colin says, Admiral Stockdale turned to me and said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. 
Now, I've pastored too many soldiers to try and compare these last few months with combat. But the thing about a paradox is that it is always hard to hold on to, even in the best of circumstances. You don't have to be in combat to have trouble believing a paradox. It's the very definition of the word. It is two things that seem self-contradictory, like they can't both be true, like it is hard to keep hope without also pinning all your hopes on one thing, one grand grand gesture, one date. But I think that maybe Jim Stockdale's confidence wasn't really a paradox because Jim Stockdale did not believe in two contradictory things. He had faith in one thing. He had faith in the people and the institution of the U.S. military. He did not have any faith in a particular date. His faith endured because he focused on who and not when. And that's also the challenge that the book of Hebrews puts in front of us today. I mentioned to you earlier that Monday was a low day for me. It was the kind of day that quite literally put me on the floor at the end of the day. That night I was on my knees praying, God, I am not made for this. I am caught between too many things, between what I believe is right and what I believe people can tolerate and what my own heart longs for. And I prayed, God, I don't even know how to pray. Lord, teach me to pray. And that, by the way, has become one of my most treasured and honest prayers. Lord, teach me what to pray. I don't know if you ever pray that. I don't know if you ever pray for what to pray about, but I pray that often. And as I prayed it there Monday night, there on my knees, I found myself grabbing my Bible and turning to the Psalms. And that particular Bible had a little insert right around Psalm 38, which is in a section of Psalms that are full of lament. And I found myself praying Psalm 38, 15, which says, it is for you, O Lord, that I wait. And that brought to mind a scripture that I know much more familiarly than the Psalms. It's a scripture from the book of Hebrews that I was reading as a 15-year-old kid many years ago when I felt a call from God to preach. I found myself praying over a different verse on Monday night from the book of Hebrews than the one that grabbed me all those years ago. But when I woke the next morning, that particular verse from Hebrews was still on my lips and in my heart. And before I share with you, I want to give you a little bit of context on the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was a letter that was written for a people whose faith and whose confidence were just about burned out. There's a lot we don't know about the book of Hebrews. We don't know exactly who wrote it. I'm kind of partial to the theory that Martin Luther argued for, that it was written by a guy named Apollos, who's mentioned in the book of Acts. But the author doesn't say, so no one knows for sure. And today I'm going to call the author of the book of Hebrews, the teacher We also don't know who exactly the recipients were of the book of Hebrews. We think they were probably Jewish converts to Christianity who lived near Rome. But again, we don't really know for sure. What we do have a pretty good idea of is the timing. We can be fairly confident from a variety of evidence that Hebrews was written between 60 AD and 90 AD, which means that it was written as a letter to encourage the up and coming second generation of Christians. It's written at a time when those who had expected to see Jesus return in their lifetimes are reckoning with the fact that everything might take a little bit longer than they had anticipated. And it was written at a time when the persecution of Christians had begun to increase after a period of relative peace. 
And the writer makes a point of saying that the persecution has not yet gotten to prisoner of war camp levels. He says in chapter 12, verse four, that none of you have yet had to shed your blood. But even so, the the teacher says to these Christians, I have seen what you are enduring. And in response to all this, the teacher writes this letter that is full of faith and encouragement and is also entirely empty of false promises. The teacher does not predict when all the trouble is going to end. The teacher doesn't say, don't worry, the worst is over. The teacher never puts faith in the things he doesn't know. Because the teacher does not believe in the power of positive thinking. The book of Hebrews is not an evangelistic book written to people who are on fire because they have heard about Jesus for the first time. The book of Hebrews assumes that the people who are reading it have been around the block and they know a thing or two. And so the teacher says to them, do you remember the Israelites? Do you remember they were given the promised land and they were given freedom and they were given a new nation? And then do you remember somewhere in the middle, in the wilderness, things got really tough. Do you remember they, spent, they sent spies into the promised land and the spies came back to the Israelites and the Israelites said, y'all, the people in this promised land are big. They are like giants and we are like grasshoppers and this is going to be hard. And some said, yeah, the wilderness isn't quite what we expected, but it's good enough. Let's just stay here. And there were others who said, hey, let's just go back to Egypt. Quit worrying about all this. We were slaves, but at least we ate well. A couple weeks ago, we said that the twin temptations we all face are denial and despair, and that's the people who read the book of Hebrews. They're in the middle. (laughs) And some of them are tempted to deny Jesus so that their lives can be easier. And others are tempted to despair because they have been waiting so long and it feels easier to give up hope. And the book of Hebrews is written for people who are tired and who are burned out and also for people who are maybe just a little bit ashamed. That's the other essential part of the book of Hebrews. It talks a lot about shame. Shame was an inescapable part of being a Christian in the first century. There were a lot of embarrassing rumors around Christians in this particular era. One of those rumors was that Christians were cannibals because they ended every worship service by eating flesh and drinking blood. You can imagine how welcome that made them at dinner parties. Many of these early Christians were cast out. They were disowned. They were estranged from their own families. They were this small, weird minority sect that had not exactly taken Rome by storm the way they expected to. And we know from the book of Hebrews and also from 1 Thessalonians that some of these early Christians were ashamed of dying. If you had given up everything to follow Jesus, if you had based your whole life around waiting for Christ's return and then he hadn't returned and you were about to die, then what did, that have, then what did you have to show for all your moralizing and your righteousness? Maybe you'd wonder a little sheepishly if you were wrong. Maybe you'd be ashamed and afraid that you wasted your life. It's been a long three and a half months for us, but the last few weeks in particular seem to have a lot of us talking about shame. I've heard a lot lately about mask shaming and you want a paradox? Here's a paradox. Mask shaming can mean two different things at once. It can mean stop treating me like a public pariah and menace because I'm not wearing a mask. And mask shaming can also mean stop calling me a coward and an idiot for wearing a mask. 
That's an equal opportunity offense. Anybody can shame anybody or be shamed by anyone. There are lots of other opportunities for shame these days. The toxicity of our politics has made it inescapable. I have heard for more people this month than I have in an entire career of ministry, the kinds of people who are struggling with shame that comes from their coworkers and from their own families. And I have had long conversations and I also owe several more people some long conversations with so many people in our church who feel attacked and discarded often by their own loved ones. And again, this political, philosophical life shame, it's equal opportunity. So before I get to the teacher's big answer to our weariness, I wanna highlight some advice that he gives about shame. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the teacher challenges the church and he says, pursue peace with everyone and chase the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He goes on to say, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Let no root of bitterness spring up. You know, when optimism fails us, bitterness feels like truth. Bitterness is the fool's gold of happiness. Bitterness is a smile with no joy. Bitterness is a smirk that is waiting to shame the one who shamed us. Bitterness is the first step of giving up. And bitterness keeps us from giving grace to others, but not only that, it keeps us from receiving grace. The teacher says, without pursuing peace with our neighbor and without keeping ourselves holy and chasing after holiness, none of us can see God. And that's what we really long for. All of this is in the background, not only for us today, but for the first readers of Hebrews. Some of them are tempted to bitterness, some to denial, some to despair. And in answer to all of this, the teacher does not say a word about when it will all be better, but instead he speaks entirely about the one who will make it so. And in chapter 12, verse one and two, he speaks the words I found on Monday night that say, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Let us look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarded its shame, and has taken up his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. That became my prayer on Monday night. Let me look to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I have looked at BamaTracker.com so much I've worn out my refresh button. And I'll admit, I've looked at every word you've written to me. I've looked into the eyes of every person on every Zoom call, trying to see what would win their approval. I've looked at every church around us and far away from us and every study that I could. I have looked to the pastors that I know who have caught this virus. And I've looked at the churches that I know that have spread it. And I confess my own arrogance or haughtiness that I have felt when I have looked at churches that I didn't think we're doing socially distant ministry as well as we were. And I also confess that I've felt ashamed when I've seen churches doing good in ways I never imagined. I have learned the truth of the old advice that to compare is to despair. I have looked at everything I could 
And I don't know how you have handled this, but I have sometimes been very bitter that I could not bend everything around us to my will and to my mind and make everything be the way it ought to be. And on the other hand, I've looked at our generosity, at the faithfulness of our online attendance. I've looked at the ways people have poured themselves out for the gospel. And I've been so very proud to be a pastor at Dolphin Way. I look back at all the online meetings that we've had to make all kinds of future shaping decisions. And I see how many people, people who are self-confessed technophobes and they've hung in there while we learned to video conference, to do remote job interviews. I'm so incredibly grateful. I look to how our CDC and our Meals on Wheels are not just going the extra mile. They are running daily marathons for the good of others. I see all that and I am so proud. And even the things that make me most proud also make me a little tired thinking about what's next. And how do we keep going? And when will we get to stop reinventing how we do church and how we are the church? I look at it all. But my prayer right now, my prayer has become, let me look to Jesus. And isn't it amazing that we let anything take our eyes off of him? I tell you, I miss my old Sunday mornings. But have I begun to think that I was missing Jesus? And did I really put my hope or my joy in anything else? Let me look to Jesus who kept his own eyes up and fixed on the joy that was before him. Let me look to Jesus who endured everything. The shame that we piled on him, it could not touch his heart and it could not make him bitter. It could not make him give up or give way because he knew the joy that was before him. And let me tell you, the day is going to come when we fill this room again. And then probably sometime a little bit after that, we're gonna have another day where we don't just fill this room, but we fill it with singing. And on both of those days, you should know, I'm gonna have a stack of tissues right beside my hand sanitizer because the tears are going to flow. I miss us. But not even those days will be the joy that I'm looking for. Let me look to Jesus. Let me look to him on that day and today. Let me look to Jesus, not just in the future, but even now, because Jesus is not waiting to show up. The book of Hebrews goes on in its final chapter to say that he has promised never to leave us or forsake us, and he is with you right now. And right now we can look to him. And heaven help us if we get caught looking for anything else or anything less than Jesus. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, the teacher says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested just as we are yet without sin. So let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can look to Jesus even now because he has endured everything that we have. He's known our loneliness. He has, no, he has known the frailty and the failings of our own bodies. Jesus, the almighty king of kings, knows what it means to surrender and be subject to powers that would not bend to his own will. Those powers made him look and feel powerless. Those powers heaped shame upon him. And even that shame could not cause Jesus to look away from us. And so even now, wherever you are watching this, 
you can look to him. Look to him in prayer. Look to him in scripture. I highly recommend the Psalms of Lament. There are a lot of them. I recommend the book of Hebrews. I recommend reaching out to your brothers and sisters in the church and look to Jesus in everything. If you count on anything less than him for your satisfaction, you will never find it. But if even now you learn to seek him first, then all manner of joys will be added. The teacher in Hebrews goes on in chapter 12 to describe all the hardships that the readers are facing. And he describes them as a time of training and of discipline. And he says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It is painful. But then he goes on and says, later on, that discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and of peace for those who have been trained by it. Just last week in our Zoom devotional with our staff, I read for them 2 Timothy 1.7. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but rather a spirit of power and love and of self-discipline. And this moment we're all in, it calls for more self-discipline than any of us were looking for. But when I look to Jesus, I cannot help but think that this time is also preparing us for a harvest of righteousness and peace like we have never seen. We are learning to adapt. We are disciplining ourselves and training ourselves in new ways. You may have seen our plans for phases one, two, and three of our community recovery. And we know that path won't be a straight line. Even now we're looking for accessible venues and equipment that we can use to help us gather safely for special occasions if our community gets stuck or relapses along the way. We are learning to reach people and proclaim the gospel in ways that we frankly neglected for a long time. And we are learning not to take one another for granted, aren't we? We are going to come through this as a stronger, more resilient, more capable church than we entered it. And the signs are already showing if we take the time to look. This is my 51st consecutive week of preaching at Dauphin Way. It's the last week of my first year here. And I never could have guessed what it would look like. But I promised you a year ago that I only had two sermons. The first one says that Jesus is king. And the second one says his kingdom is like this. And now I have seen you do more than I could have ever expected in a year. I have seen the kingdom in ways I never could have expected. But even now my faith and my belief are not in a particular time or even a particular place. My trust is not in the wins or the wares or the anniversaries or the milestone dates. My faith is in Jesus. And my prayer is that I will keep looking only to him. And wherever you are hearing this word, I want you to know the Holy word is living in you too. He is the one who gave you faith. He is the one who will perfect your faith as Hebrew says even by holy training and discipline. The author and perfecter of our faith is still with us. So let us look to him. What joy is ahead of us? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, as we make this preparation to give our offering to you, may it be a joyful and wholehearted gift. May it be a sign that even now we are able to name your abundance and share it, that it may bless others and give them reason to give you thanks. Amen.